0: Hi, my name is Fabienne Goutier. Um, I'm here in Haiti, in Napoyol. We had a great clinic today. Uh, saw many, many people, about 217 people. And we had every specialty, uh, dental, eye, OB-GYN, uh, pediatrics, and uh, our pharmacy was off the chain. <laughs> And uh, yeah, so we're gonna be here for the week. Thank you so much, Sagebrush, for making this happen. Aside from having clinic, we also had a training. So we had a skills refresher course for 11 students that we had previously trained um, as first responders. And so uh, we're gonna be doing that again all week, training um, these agents um, because they live very far away and they have very few resources. I really appreciate Um, the opportunity that Sagebrush has given us to not only have clinic here today, this week, um, but also to have the training going on this week for people who are coming so far away um, and that need to learn something so they can take back to their communities and even train other people. Thank you for making it happen.
1: Very exciting stuff. And we talked last week about living a significant life. And even from right here where you're sitting and where you're at at home, you are living a significant life. When you give your tithes and your offerings, it goes to medical things like that. Uh, That Haiti mission trip, we're not able to send people right now because of COVID. Uh, But that doesn't mean we don't have partners on the ground. And so you guys paid for all those doctors and all the nurses. And over the course of the week, they saw over 1,000 people get medical care uh, for that clinic and every single person had the opportunity to accept or reject Jesus Christ as a leader and forgiver of their life because before you can be seen, we're going to explain to you that Jesus loves you, that he died on a cross and that he rose again from the dead and he wants to have a relationship with you. So you're making a huge difference and there's going to be a day, I believe this with all my heart, when we breathe our last breath on this earth and we breathe our first breath in heaven that these folks are going to be coming up to you. And they 're going to be thanking you because the the difference that you made in their life, the fact that they could hear the message of Jesus, the fact that they could get medical care and get some help along the way, and it 's all because you care about something bigger than your, yourself and, and i 'm so excited. Uh, about all of that. We're in the middle of the series. Actually, we're ending the series today called Are We There Yet? We've been looking at four compelling questions that every person needs to have a compelling answer to, and we said that we wanted to make sure that our kids had answers to these questions as well, and we made certain that we as parents had the answers first because you can't give to your child that which you don't have. Let me recap for those who are watching for the first time. Four compelling questions you need an answer to. First one is what's going to be the Center of your life, or who is going to be the center of your life? And I know we all know the answer to that question. It's supposed to be Jesus, yet the question is, is are we really living according to that answer, or have we settled for a lesser uh, form of living? And then what's going to be uh, the, uh, c- the character of my life? And we talked about setting an example for the believers in speech and life and love and faith and impurity, and then we talked about helping our kids navigate the waters, uh, the minefield that is the dating situation, who are they going to marry with? with their life. And then last week, we looked at what is going to be the contribution of their life. And we talked about living a significant life. Talked about three different levels to living. The lowest level is survival, just living day by day by day. A lot of people choose to do that. Then we talked about success, people are living for the almighty dollar that rather than for almighty God. So when things begin to change, their, their faith begins to waver a little bit because their faith isn't really in God, it's in something else. And the The highest level of living we talked about is a life of significance. It's leaving this piece of the world in better shape than the way that you found it. And that's what I want to talk to you about today. Uh, we were, I was reading this book by John Weiss. It's called Jesus Prom. It's a great book. And in the book, he's talking about going home one day. And he's driving to his, to his cul-de-sac to get to his house. And out of the corner of his eye, he sees a, a front door open wide. And a little boy about the age of five run out the door in nothing more than a Superman underoos. I mean, the kid just bust out, and I tell you, that it was the middle of winter, kind of cold day where you could see your breath. Comes out in his underoos, he's got himself a bath towel for a cape, and he's running with every bit he's got, and he runs right next to John's car with this huge smile on his face. Oh, did I fail to mention that his mom was chasing him with the wooden spoon? Did I forget to mention that as well? When John looked over and glanced at the kid, and the kid glanced back at him, it was as if the kid said, free at last, free at last. Thank God Almighty, I'm free at last. Well, this was no ordinary kid because a couple of months went by and John saw him once again, but this time he was in a mud puddle up to his eyeballs just having the time of his life. It was a few days after that that John saw him once again out in his front yard in his Superman underoos with an oversized motorcycle helmet on his bicycle, jumping one dirt pile after another. He said it was like watching evil Knievel jump the fountains at Caesar's Palace. John said, this is not some ordinary kid. He's got a zest for life like I've never seen before. He said, I'd like to meet that kid someday. Well, sure enough, that night he was at the park with his two kids, and and little Superman was there as well. And he was on the swings, and he was going as high as those swings would possibly take him. And then when he got to the very top of the swings, he jumped off, fell all the way to the ground, did a somersault through the mulch, and stood up. John walked over to him. He said, Son, what's your name? And Without missing a beat, he made the pose of a superhero. He said, My name is Christian. Isn't that an appropriate name for someone? A Christian is someone who has a bias for action. Someone who wants to make a difference with their one and only shot with life. I don't know about you, but I want to be like that kid. Now, I don't want to run, run around the neighborhood in underoos by any stretch of the imagination because ain't nobody got time for that if you understand what I'm saying right now. But to have that intensity, that zest for life, that excitement, that adventure for something greater, all I've ever wanted to be a part of something is something bigger than myself. It's all I've ever wanted to do with my life. I wanted to make an impact. I wanted to make a difference. And for the last 21 years, I've gotten the privilege and the opportunity to be with you. And you guys have leveraged everything you are. I believe that. For the kingdom of God, for the things of God. With this idea that we could somehow leave our peace of the world... In better shape than the way that we found it. Well, we got to pass this legacy on to our kids. And we got to talk to them all the time about what it is to live a significant life life. So we're going to look at an Old Testament hero of mine. His name is Nehemiah. There's a book in the Bible called Nehemiah. It has his name. Now, the story is too long for me to go over this with just one message. So I'm going to give you the highlights, and I hope that you'll spend some time reading through the book of Nehemiah yourself as you continue to seek after living a significant life. But this was a guy who leveraged everything that he was, all that he hoped to be, for something greater than than himself, and we're still talking about this guy to this day. And I'm going to give you in this story the three keys to living a significant life. If you do these three things, your life will matter, your life will count. Now let me, let me give you a little background to the story of Nehemiah. Around uh, 587 BC, uh, Babylonia came in, the Babylonians came in, and they defeated the people of Judah. Uh, Now, that was King Nebuchadnezzar who did this. He laid siege to Jerusalem... He attacked the temple, he basically burned the city down, he tore down the fortified walls around the city, and this was a big deal, because when the walls were torn down, it was a sign to all the other enemy nations that the God of the Israelites wasn't a very big God, he wasn't a very powerful God, he was a weak God, because why would he allow an enemy nation to come and to attack them in the way that they did? Well, 70 years goes by, and a new king comes into power, and this guy's name is Cyrus. He's a Persian. The Persians were the one who defeated the Babylonians. And Cyrus allows a small remnant of people to go back to Judah and to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. Now that was led by a man by the name of Zerubbabel. And so Zerubbabel leads them back, and it just feels like for a brief amount of time that maybe, just maybe, this nation is going to be a great nation again. But once again, guess what? The people of God turned their backs on God, didn't want anything to do with him. And so when Nehemiah shows up on the scene, the political, social, and most importantly, the spiritual situation of the country is really, really dark And really bad. Now, a new king has come into power of Persia, and he has made a public proclamation that the walls around the city of Jerusalem will never be rebuilt again. So it appears that the window of opportunity has come to a close. Now, Nehemiah is the cupbearer to that king. Now, what is a cupbearer? He's in charge of security. He is the head bodyguard. He's the most trusted servant that the king has. He makes certain that no assassination attempts are successful. He makes sure that the food that the king gets isn't poisoned as well. Well, look at what happens here because the book of Nehemiah is his own personal journal. Nehemiah's personal journal. Let's look at what he writes. Verse 1, chapter 1. Words of Nehemiah, son of Achaiah, in the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Hananiah, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that survived the exile, and also about Jerusalem. And they said to me, those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates have been burned with fire. And then verse 4 says this. When I heard these things, I sat down and I wept. For some days I mourned and I fasted and I prayed before the God of heaven. Now here's what's interesting to me. Nehemiah has never been to Jerusalem. Any more than you've ever been to Haiti. He's never been, never been there before. Never doesn't know anything about these people. But when he hears about their plight. When he hears about what they're experiencing, when he hears about what they're going through, he just breaks down, his heart breaks, and he begins to weep. Now, why is that? Well, here's the first key if you want to live a significant life. You ready? Write it down. Difference makers care about the same things that God cares about. Let me say that again. Difference makers care about the same things that God cares about. What breaks the heart of God breaks their heart, too. And when you find what that is for you, when you find what it is that breaks the very heart of God and it breaks your heart too, then you know for what divine purpose God has placed you on this earth for. You know what it is that he wants you to leverage for his kingdom. Now, here's what's interesting to me about Nehemiah. He doesn't ignore it. There are so many people that watch our world crumble around us and watch situations crumble around us. And we won't be the voice. We won't stand up for reason. We won't stand up for what's right. Why? Because we ignore the situation. We act like it isn't our problem. But not Nehemiah. Even though he's never been there before, even though he doesn't know these people, he hurts for them. When he hears that the walls around the city of Jerusalem are still torn down, he knows what that means to all the enemy nations around there, that everyone is making fun of his great God. And he refuses to allow that to be a part of his life. Now, here's what's interesting. He doesn't have to do this. Remember last week we talked about getting out of this bubble that we find ourselves in? The bubble of success or the bubble of survival, the bubble of comfort. And so we like everything to be the way we want it to be. And when we get comfortable, we don't care about the world outside of our little bubble. As long as everything's good in our little bubble, everything's fine. And we could ignore the real plight of what's going on all around us because we're comfortable in our little bubble. Nehemiah could have done that. He's got a cush job. He's second in charge of Persia. He's set for the rest of his life. Why would you risk all of that? Thoughts of what could be compared to what was, drove him to his knees. And he begged God to use him in a significant way. Now, I want you to see what Nehemiah does because he takes a risk. Now, one of the things you need to know in this time period, you were never allowed to go before a king and show any kind of sadness. If you showed sadness before a king, they would execute you. But Nehemiah is so broken-hearted that when he comes into the king's presence, he shows sadness. And the king asks him, what's the matter? Now, now, think about this. He's risking not only his job, but he's risking his very life. And so he begins to share with the king about the situation of the people back in Jerusalem and how his heart has broken for them. And so the king asks the question, he says, what is it that you want? Now, remember, this is the guy who didn't want the wall rebuilt. He's already made a public proclamation that it's not going to happen. Look at what happens here, chapter 2, verse 7. Nehemiah says, when the king asks, what do you want? If it pleases the king, may I have letters to the governors of the trans-Euphrates so that they'll provide me safe conduct until I arrive in Judah. And may I have a letter letter to Asaph, keeper of the king's forest, so he'll give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel by the temple and for the city wall and for the residence I will occupy. Now that's boldness. King, uh, um, just out out of curiosity, will will, uh, will you uh, let me build this wall and uh, will you pay for it? The the wall that you didn't want to build, King, the wall that you said would never be built as long as you were alive. I'm just curious, can I go build it and will you pay for it? And the king said, Yes. When when you start pursuing what it is that, that God wants you to pursue and you start doing the things that God wants you to do, God will provide a way. God will open up the doors. God will give you opportunities. Things that you never thought would open will open up before your very eyes. It's just God's looking for somebody who will have the faith to take a a step forward. And so I want you to see what happens. Nehemiah writes after the king says, yes, this is the way he writes in his journal. He says, because the gracious hand of my God was upon me, the king granted my request. He doesn't write because I was such a good-looking and trusted servant. He doesn't, doesn't write that, does he? Because for Nehemiah, he, he wasn't alive for himself. His world didn't revolve around him. He just wanted to be used by God. And he was always giving credit to God. So the next five months, Nehemiah absorbed this vision, and he gathers the lumber, and he gathers the wood, and he gathers the letters, and he gathers all the stuff that he needs to gather. And now five months is up, and he's ready to go. And So he heads to Jerusalem. And he finally makes it to the town, and... Uh, He makes quite a ruckus because he's got quite a parade that's behind him with all the resources and all the supplies. And all the people are like, what in the world is this guy doing here? We don't even know why he's here. But Nehemiah doesn't address the crowd. He just makes them wonder for for three days. You know what he's doing? He's he's assessing the situation for three days. He wants to see how bad it really is. And then he gathers the people together, and he gives this little speech, uh, chapter 2, verse 17, Then I said to them, you see the trouble we're in? Jerusalem lies in ruins, and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let's rebuild the wall of Jerusalem, and we'll no longer be in disgrace. I also told them about the gracious hand of my God upon me, and what the king had said to me. Second key, if you want to make a significant difference with your life. Difference makers fight against the status quo. Nehemiah gathers all the people together after three days, and he states the obvious. He says, the walls... They're torn down. Can you imagine if you've been living there for the last, I don't know, 90 years? You'd be like, yeah. Uh, We've been walking around the debris forever, man. We're stepping over this stuff all the time. Yeah, duh. Uh, That's a great assessment there. The walls are torn down. Why does he state the obvious? Because they had gotten used to it. They were no longer concerned. They had learned to live with it. You know what I find out about people who live a survival life or a successful life is that they've learned to live with the deficits of their life. They don't even care anymore. You ever heard anybody say uh, something like, I, I guess this is the way I'll always be? You ever heard anybody say that? Guess that's just the way God made me. I guess that's just as good as it's gonna get. That's as good as my marriage is gonna be. That's as good as my kids are gonna be. This is as good as this job's gonna be, that's as good as it gets. You ever said that? These people ceased to be concerned about it. They had learned to live with it. Can I ask you a question? What have you learned to live with? What is it in your life that you're settling in? What debris is all around you that you keep stepping over, but you won't address it to fix it and to make things right? I'm always amazed at the number of people who will settle in life. They'll settle with a, a loveless marriage. They'll settle for rebellious kids. They'll settle for that pet sin to raise its ugly head and give into to it again and again and again and again until they're absolutely powerless, and until they're defeated. They don't even try anymore because they don't even care anymore. They have settled along the way. Can I talk to the parents here for just a second? Those of you who are at home, how many of you are settling right now with your kids? Your kids are biblically illiterate. They don't know Genesis from Revelation or anything in between. Have you invested anything in them? Are you preparing them for the spiritual warfare that they're going to be facing every day of their life to the day they breathe their last breath? Are you investing in them in a spiritual manner? Because that's what this series has been all about. And so for the past, I don't know, we're on week number 5. For the past 5 weeks, have you had a single family devotional? Did you pray any big, hairy, audacious prayer for your kids? And just how many prayers have you prayed for them? How many times have you gathered them together? How many times have you cracked open the word of God for them? Do you not want them to be spiritual champions? Do you not want them to rise up and live their life for the things of God and for the kingdom of God? And here's the other question. Are we living our life that way, or have we settled along the way? Have we just ceased to be concerned with these types of things? This is more for the mom to do than it is for the dad. I hear that all the time. One of the questions I've been asked recently is, how in the world do you do a family devotional? You're making this harder than it needs to be. You're scouring for a book. You don't need a book. You need the Bible. And then you need to open up the Sagebrush app and open up the little Bible app that's under the resource tab. And you need to do the New Testament playing with your kids. Because there's one story after another story, another story after about Jesus. You say, what if I come to a passage of Scripture and I, I don't know what it means? Well, welcome to the real world. I'm with you on that. I mean, I've been reading the Bible for a long, long time. There's still lots of passages of Scripture. I'm like, oh, that I'm talking about. That's crazy right there. I don't worry about what I don't understand. What I'm concerned about is what to do. You can sit down and read a story about Jesus. You can pick any story you want. At the end of the story, just start asking some questions. What would you think about that story? What would you do in that situation? Why do you think Jesus has that kind of wisdom? Should Jesus have acted that way? Was that a good idea? You're making it harder than it needs to be. And it only needs to last five, ten minutes. But it's those small little seeds, those little significant moments that you have with your children. It can make such an eternal impact on their life. Some of you have a, a, a terrible marriage. But you won't do anything about it. You've just gotten used to it. You say, this is as good as it's going to get. You're not going to go see a counselor. You won't even read a book. From a marriage counselor to say, This is the things that we need to work on. You won't even have the hard conversation anymore because every time you try to have the hard conversation, it ends up in World War III. You've just given up. Some of us are just tired and you've become so spiritually apathetic, you've got nothing to give because you're not receiving anything. You're not spending time in the Word of God. The walls around your heart have been torn down and the debris is everywhere. And maybe God sent me here to you today to say, Do you understand that you don't have to live like this anymore? You can want something greater. And that's been my prayer for you all this week is that you get sick of it, but it would move you to action. To whatever you know is not right, whatever you know is out of sync with what God wants for your life, that you'd say, you know what, with the power of the Holy Spirit that lives inside of me, we are going to attack this together. I'm tired of settling. I want significance. I want God's best in my life. So Nehemiah gives this speech. He says, listen, the walls are torn down. They're like, no, duh. And he gives this compelling reason. Let's do it for the kingdom of God. Let's do it for the glory of God. And he riles up the people and they get excited. Look at what happens. Chapter 2, verse 18. They said, let's arise and build. So they put their hands to the good work. Nothing ever gets accomplished until somebody leads the charge. And says, this has to be fixed. This has to be taken care of. Well, chapter 3 is a long list of all the people who helped rebuild the walls. And it's just one person after another person after another. For the most part, everybody did their part. Everybody pitched in. In fact, there's 20 different times in chapter 3 that Nehemiah writes the phrase, they worked next to each other. They locked arms with each other to get the job done. Can you imagine how exciting that must have been? There was a couple of little kids. They were up in the attic of their grandparents, and they came across some old Life magazines. And one of the Life magazines had a picture of a dad carrying his son out of a wheat field. So they opened up the story to see what was going on. Turns out that the mom, one afternoon, was outside doing her chores. And uh, she had a three-year-old little boy, and she turned her back on him for just a few moments. And when she turned back around, she couldn't find him. He had wandered off in the wheat fields. Wheat fields were too high. She couldn't find him. So she screamed out his name over and over and over again. And he did not respond. And so you can imagine how panicked she must have been. Have you ever, ever lost your child, even for just a split second? I remember years ago, we lost Mackenzie, and then we found her. That's a joke. Just stay with me, people. Wake up. I remember my wife just being scared to death. We were at this fall fest that Hoffmantown had at the time, and we lost her for about, I don't know, two minutes, and it was two of the longest minutes of my life. Can you imagine the panic this woman has? And This is before the days of cell phones. She's got nobody to call, no one to come help her. She's looking all up and down those wheat fields, calling out that boy's name again and again and again and again, and she's waiting to hear anything. And she gets nothing. Finally, her husband pulls up, end of the day. Can you imagine the horror of having to tell your husband that you've lost your son? And so he begins to search. And every second that ticks by, there's more panic, more stress, more anxiety. Now the sun's going down, and it's getting very cold. So they run inside the house, and they call all their neighbors, all their family, all their friends. Get 50 people out to their house, and they begin to search throughout the night with lanterns. And they can't find him. And when the sun was coming up in the morning, someone had the bright idea of locking arms with each other so they wouldn't miss anything. And so there was pictures in the Life magazine of these people, 50 strong, locking arms, walking through that wheat field. And around noon, they found the little boy. But he was already dead. And the picture was the dad carrying out the boy. And this is what the caption to the picture said, if only we'd have locked arms sooner. I think about our church, and I know COVID's come, and we don't feel like we can be as effective as we once were because we're scattered in every home and every little crevice, and every place, and there's not very many of us coming right now. And You know, what can we really accomplish? What can we really do? We can do exceedingly abundantly more than anything we've ever dreamed or imagined. Because we can lock arms with each other, we can live significant lives, and we can advance the kingdom of God even in the midst of a pandemic. We can meet needs, we can reach people for Jesus, we can share our faith with others, we can be a light in a dark place. What could we accomplish? What could we do if we just joined arms with each other? But that's only for those of us who are sick of the status quo who wants something greater, not only for ourselves, but for those who God has placed in our sphere of influence as well. Well, there were two guys. Their names were Samballot and Tobiah, and they didn't like the fact that Nehemiah was rebuilding the walls around the city of Jerusalem, and they're doing everything in their power to try to stop him. Uh, They're trying to scare the people. They're threatening that they're going to invade the territory, that they're going to kill them all. They try to get Nehemiah to come to a meeting, but he won't be detoured. Here's the third thing I want you to get about making a difference. Difference makers have persistence. They persevere. Another way to say it is this. They just won't quit. They don't give up. They don't give up when it gets tough. No soldier on the battlefield is surprised when someone's shooting at them. And no football player is surprised when the opposing team is trying to tackle them when they have the ball. Write this down if you're taking notes. Life is a battle. Isn't that the truth? And every day, it just seems to get more and more difficult. And those who persevere, those who want something greater, those who push through the obstacles that come before them, those who keep their eyes on the prize, those are the ones that will live a significant life. Those that get a God-given dream inside of them of what could be and what should be, and they say, I don't care what comes against me. With God on my side, he will help me overcome whatever is in front of me. I am more than a a conqueror because of Jesus Christ who lives in me. I just am not going to quit. I mean, if your marriage hits a rough patch, are you going to just throw in the towel and quit? No, difference makers, they persevere. When your child is acting like a fool because there's not enough oxygen reaching their brain, are you just going to quit? No, you persevere. You pray for them. You have the hard conversations. You lean upon the Word of God. You believe greater things for them. You don't give up on the kid. And you don't give up on God. You persevere. And when that sin comes back to tempt you, The sin that you've given into a thousand times before, do you just roll over and play dead? No. You get back up, and you say, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength, and you persevere. Think about the men and women who have gone on before us, who have done great and mighty things, all because they persevered. I think about Thomas Edison. Did you know it was 10,000 different attempts, right around 10,000 different attempts before he finally figured out a filament that would light up an incandescent light bulb? Did, did, did you know that Abraham Lincoln lost over a half a dozen elections before he became the president of the United States? Did you know the Wright brothers crashed 147 times before they finally figured out how to get a plane off of the ground? Here's my question. What if they had to quit? What if Edison would have said, man, I don't think we're ever going to figure this out. We've tried 9,000 different ways. What if he quit one time before the right time? What if Abraham Lincoln would have allowed his losses to be his legacy? And what if the Wright brothers looked at each other and said, you know, we've crashed 146 times. I'm kind of tired of crashing, to be honest with you. Why don't you crash today? I don't want to crash today. What if they'd thrown in the towel at flight 146? They never would have seen 147. God uses obstacles and difficulties to develop us and to strengthen us to be the people that he wants us to be. Look at what the Bible says here, James chapter one, verse two. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. And perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Wouldn't it be awesome if everyone knew that no matter what this world threw at you, that you were never, no, never going to quit? They send messengers to Nehemiah. They say, You gotta come down from the wall. You got you gotta walk away. We've got to have this meeting. We got to have this talk. And Nehemiah said this in Nehemiah six, verse three. He said, I'm carrying on a great project, and I cannot come down. I'm carrying on a great marriage. I'm gonna build this marriage till its completion. I won't come down. I'm raising spiritual champions. Kids who are sold out for the things of God and the kingdom of God. I will not come down. I will not go back to the same things I went to before. I will not do the same things that messed up my life before. I will not come down. I'm finishing what God put inside of me to do. Those are the three keys. When your heart breaks with the same things that God's heart breaks over, you found your purpose. When you're sick and tired of the status quo, so sick of it that you're willing to roll up your sleeves and do something about it, you'll live a significant life. And when you won't give up, when you won't quit, no matter how hard it becomes, at the end of the day, you will leave a legacy behind that your kids will be proud to follow. I want that so bad for you. I want that for me. Let me pray for you. God, help us to be these kinds of people that persevere, that won't quit, that won't give up, That won't settle along the way for something less than God. Help us to have the faith of Nehemiah. Who sees a need and says, I will meet that need. Lord, it's amazing to me that in 52 days he was able to complete that wall. Something that the rest of the people had ignored for 90 years. He saw you do it. In 52 days. Lord, whatever debris is in our life, whatever it is that we keep stepping over and acting like it's not that big of a deal, it's always going to be this way. May today be the day when we start rebuilding that area of our life. With your power and your guidance, God, help us. Help us to live a significant life, to show it to our kids. And that they would follow in our footsteps. And they would live a significant life as well. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.